As Joe Biden's approval ratings continue to plummet as his reelection looks in greater and greater doubt, the Biden administration, the Biden White House, has decided to stay with the genocidal policies being pursued by the Israeli government in Gaza. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Eugene Perrier. Eugene is an author and political activist. He's the co-host of The Freedom Side Live, a live video show every Thursday from 3 to 5 p.m. that you can see on Breakthrough News. That's 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Eugene Perrier, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Great to be here. Well, there's a lot to talk about, and I'm so happy that you were available to be the guest because... You follow international politics. You have a, a careful eye on domestic politics. You've been following the Biden administration since Biden won the election in 2020 and took office in 2021. You and I have talked a great deal in the past about Biden's Ukraine war, and that's what it really is, a war between the U.S. and Russia with Ukraine as a proxy. Biden is in panic mode right now, or at least his advisors are, because a special counsel report came out and said, Look, we're not going to indict Biden for criminally taking classified documents because he can't remember anything. And because he said, I can't remember, I can't remember, I can't remember. He couldn't remember when he took office. He couldn't remember when his son died. He said he couldn't remember anything. Now, maybe he was just trying to use that as a defense because obviously politicians say, I can't remember. A lot of times, Trump said it too, when they said, why'd you take all of these classified documents illegally? Why'd you take them to Mar-a-Lago? Trump and his entourage were saying, I can't remember, I can't remember. But you really can't have it both ways. Either you did remember and you lied, which would be a crime, or you can't remember. The special prosecutor might have been doing Biden a favor by saying, look, we're going to take him for his word. He can't remember in which case we're not going to hold him legally culpable. But when you read the special prosecutor report, you kind of come to the conclusion, Eugene, that Biden, at least in a large measure of that five-hour-long interview, couldn't remember. And yet he's at the helm. He's the guy saying yes, yes, yes to Netanyahu and saying no to a ceasefire. Anyway, let's get started. I want to get your thoughts. No, well, I think it's a good point. I mean, you know, the thing about the special prosecutor's report that maybe to me is the most telling is the fact that after it came out, you know, they were dragging out, they being the White House, people you hadn't heard from in years, Eric Holder, just all sorts of just random individuals to say that this is politically motivated, you would never do this, this, that, and the third. But you would never push back that hard on an allegation that you were perhaps approaching some level of senility or having some levels, uh, you know, beyond the normal levels with all of us, I think, as we age, you know, in terms of problems with memory, sharpness and things like that, if 
you weren't actually having those issues. Because the reality is, and what, you know, Korean Jean-Pierre, the uh, White House secretary, uh, press secretary, keeps saying, well, you know, every day you see Biden doing all these things and talking to people and doing all that. Well, if it was so clear and so impressive, you wouldn't need to tell anyone. The report would be ridiculous on its face. But I think, as you can see, the level of response coming from the White House shows that there is a concern. They know there's a concern. It's been something that's been leaking out, you know, bit by bit. There is the article that came out, I believe it was in the New York Times, shortly after. After this might have been political. I might have this confused about how Jill Biden spends a lot of time protecting him from having sort of unscripted conversations, especially around the media. Uh, we know for an absolute fact that he does most of his Oval Office quote unquote appearances from the old executive office building in a different mock-up of the Oval Office because the actual Oval Office can't have the right teleprompters because he can't be without that under any circumstance. He wouldn't do an interview before the Super Bowl, which was guaranteed to be, you know, the softball of all softballs. Nobody on CBS Sports was going to give him any sort of tough interview right before the Super Bowl, but they declined that as well because they were concerned what has taken place. And quite frankly, Brian, anyone who is on social media is seeing these, yes, selectively edited reels coming from the Republicans. But nonetheless, you know, when you can string together six, seven, eight, nine incidents that seem to call into question whether or not the president is all there, then I think you clearly have a problem. And I think it speaks to maybe some deeper underlying realities of what's happening in our country with this system, that they would actually rather have, you know, someone like Biden who who may be compromised in terms of his actual mental capabilities, and someone like Trump, who even if he's not mentally compromised, is obviously, you know, an extreme pro-capitalist maniac in many ways, that these two people would be the individuals that the ruling class is putting forward to lead the country. There's almost no other way to look at this than as a state of decline for the system itself. As much as we're talking about whether or not Biden is in a state of decline, the fact that we have two you know, this is no disrespect to our seniors, but two very elderly individuals, one of whom may not be with it. The other who one is so unhinged, you know, he might as well not be with it, honestly, on a a lot of the occasions, really just says a lot about where we are, I think, in terms of U.S. capitalism and its ability to continually renew itself amongst its own populace, because most people don't want to see either of these individuals run for president. And that in and of itself is also an important fact in this. Very, very important point. You know, Biden, when you look at the ratings, Eugene, and I know you look at the polling, most Democrats, not just most people, but most Democrats don't want Biden to be the candidate. And most Democrats think he's too old, that he's not an effective communicator. That's putting it mildly. Most young people don't want Biden to run. One, because they think he's ineffective as a communicator. He's, quote, too old. But also they disagree and hate his policies especially the war in Gaza. I mean, you have millions of people literally in the streets for Palestine, supporting Palestine, chanting, you know, genocide Joe or will remember in November. This is the base of the Democratic Party. Biden, you know, the Democrats have picked the one person who maybe can't defeat Trump. I mean, maybe he can, but if there's anybody who can't defeat Trump right now, it would be Biden. And again, why would you not go in front of the Super Bowl where tens of millions of people are going to watch you, and you have to have a softball but unscripted interview, why would you not do that? Because Biden can't actually string two sentences together. That's a reality. I mean, he was never that good as a speaker. And he, as you know, he used to plagiarize constantly. He had to drop out of earlier presidential runs because he'd make stuff up. He'd take other people's speeches and make them and say, yeah, uh, my family was a minor and my uncles were minors. And all this stuff was just... 
He was stealing from a British labor leader. Anyway, that's Biden. I want to play a clip, though. This is when Biden was trying to recover and show that he did have his wits about him. This was after Robert Hur's special prosecutor report. He comes into the press room and he's fighting mad, like an angry older person, very angry. And then as he's leaving the press room, some of the press starts to call him back and his advisors try to restrain him, but he goes back to the microphone and I want to play this clip because he talks about uh, he talks about the Israeli war and what's going on with Egypt and the Egyptian leader al-Sisi. Let's play this clip and I'll get your reaction. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, al-Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. All right, so al-Sisi is the president of Egypt, not the president of Mexico. Mexico is quite far away from Gaza. He always calls Netanyahu Bibi like they're really buds, you know. I mean, it says a lot, too. I want to play another clip. This was, again, just in the last week since this all came out, where he's talking about the negotiations. Now, Biden, no matter how senile he might be, he's 100% with Netanyahu for the genocide. He remembers that. He remembers that. The U.S. does not want a ceasefire, but listen to the way he describes the negotiations. Let's play this next clip. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the, uh, the, the there's been a response from the opposition, but um, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top. We're not sure where it is. There's a continuing negotiation right now. Okay, that's the voice of the U.S. empire, Eugene. He couldn't remember Hamas's name. He said, uh, I got to choose my words carefully because he can't remember anything. Can't remember the name of Hamas even though in the name of fighting Hamas, he's committing genocide against the people of Gaza, and he can't even remember the name of the target. Anyway, go ahead. No, I think it's a good point. I mean, it's sort of shockingly, I mean, if you're going to back a genocide, you'd think you would at least know who's on what side, you know, I mean, to not even really know what's going on, but continually backing it, I mean, I think shows even more just the callousness of the U.S. war machine and how it is, you know, 100% hand in glove in Israel is you don't even really need to know what's going on. You just know we support Israel and all those Palestinians and all those Arabs, who cares how many of them die because they must all be wrong. Uh, And the ones that aren't wrong, you know, wrong place, wrong time, too bad, too sad. I mean, that really is the U.S. attitude towards Palestine encapsulated in a nutshell, you know, for many of the past decades, which is they're either terrorists and criminals and must all be killed. And anyone who's collateral damage is just too bad. But Israel can never be wrong and can never be questioned. But I do think yet again, it does show, you know, how seriously can you really take 
almost anything. I mean, you know, you hear the reports quite frequently, of course, coming from the White House, these strategic leaks, most of whom I, I believe to be basically fake, but saying, oh, well, we're pressuring them behind the scenes. Well, if that's how he's talking to the behind the scenes, no wonder he doesn't feel that much pressure. But again, I think it just goes back to the basic point that the White House is hiding something here. The White House is going out of its way, along with, you know, some elements of the media that I think are colluding by going easy on Joe Biden and certainly every single, you know, major Democratic Party influencer to say that this is all just a Republican plot, that there's no problem whatsoever. But at the end of the day, this is why people are concerned, because for the people here of the United States, you know, there's it depends on exactly on how you look at it. But, you know, a couple months ago, a census report that said that there were 160 million people in the United States that were having at least some trouble making ends meet week to week. 160 million some odd people. It's a few months ago, so the number might have fluctuated. But, you know, that's actually most of the people in the United States who go to work every day to survive. So you have a situation where the average person in America who is going to work, right? I mean, like someone who's doing what they're supposed to be doing is having trouble making it. People are deeply concerned about how we are going to bridge the gap here. Who is going to address their material needs and conditions? What is going on in these various countries abroad? And is our money being wasted? How are we going to, and then we can talk some more about this, you know, address issues like lead in the water? How are we going to address issues like the collapsing infrastructure and what we saw in East Palestine, where, by the way, Biden has recently said he's going to go? Didn't go at all after the people of East Palestine were being subjected to a chemical weapons attack by Norfolk Southern, essentially. But now he can go when the commemoration is coming to say, oh, how terrible this was. People are wondering, can the next president solve these problems? Can they actually improve my life? Can they make things better for me, my family, my neighbors, my loved ones, and so on? and so forth. And then you see somebody just kind of bumbling, stumbling, you know, not sure what's going on, continually forgetting basic things. You see the special counsel saying we can't even put the guy on the stand because he seems like he's so out of it. People are going to take pity on him. I, I mean, all these different things, you know, this is a serious issue. And I think for working class people, this is why you see all of the frustration, fear, anger that Biden is being put forward. And you have all these Democratic partisans trying to tell all of the Democratic base, oh, it's all a Republican plot. Oh, you're just being tricked by, you know, Trump, if you believe this. Oh, no, this is just selective editing and so on and so forth. So they're being told your concerns basically do not matter. But you know what? I think it's probably right for them to say that because their concerns don't matter. And that's the record of the Biden administration so far, which is to talk a lot about the problems that are being faced by working class Americans, but not propose solutions that actually meet the scale of the problem. Yeah, the, the hypocrisy here between both capitalist ruling class parties is very observable. I mean, you know, it's very observable. And you have the liberals in the Democratic Party, like AOC now coming out and saying, Biden is the best president ever. Biden himself said he was the most experienced, the most capable person in the United States, and that's why he was running. Kind of like what Trump said, that only he can fix America. And when, the, when he said it, the Democrats ripped him. You know, which, of course, is they should rip him. But Biden is basically saying the same thing. I noticed the New York Times articles, which are sounding the alarm that Biden should not really be the candidate if they actually want to win. And yet they're very deferential to Biden. They're very deferential. And they even use language like, and yet there is no other candidate. Now, that's just not true, that there would be no other candidate. The thing is, Biden, the Biden sort of entourage which was came into office really because of the intervention of Obama and the Obama team, they're refusing to give up the grip on power. 
And so all of this egotism, and he also says, I have to finish the job. Well, what the hell is the job? What is the job? I mean, as you're pointing out, Eugene, he came in, he had control of the House. He had con- the Democrats did. They had the control of the Senate. They had the White House. They had just beaten Trump by 7 million votes in the popular vote. So they had a lot of wind in their sails. And he said, we're going to save, no matter what the Supreme Court does with Roe v. Wade, we're going to save abortion rights. That didn't happen. They said that they were going to end or alleviate poverty. They were going to mitigate climate change. None of that's happened. In fact, under Biden, not only did the rights of abortion for women get taken away, but also the moratorium on evictions was ended. That was under Biden so that lots of working class people who were hit so hard by COVID started to be evicted. Nothing was done on climate change. In terms of the subsidy that was going to working class families under Trump and Biden, or, or maybe it was with the Build Back Better, you, you will correct me if I'm wrong, parents got $300 per month per child, and that had the impact of reducing childhood poverty in the United States by 50% in one year. Biden ended that. So what does he mean by finishing the job? Is the job just endless war with Russia and genocide against Palestinians? Is that the job he must finish? Well, I mean, you know, to ask the question is to answer it because it seems like there's no other job that he could be finishing. I mean, I think the points that you're making there are are so well taken. I mean, the child tax credit, so many issues. I mean, you know, you look at AOC, and I'll just make a point about that really quickly, too, uh, as you raise the issue correctly of the team. Uh, One of her top aides, by the way, was just recently hired by the Biden campaign to play a big role in communications. So you can see the level of political corruption and how the political machines of AOC and Biden are being merged. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, she starts going on all these various shows talking about how great he is and saying it on his social media. So uh, coincidence, perhaps. But I think you can see that that's not as perhaps sincere as she might like you to think. But that being said, I, I mean, it just, you know, the points you were making about the child tax credit speak to so many different elements of his entire program. I mean, first and foremost, to say he's one of the most effective presidents ever. I don't even know how you measure that. I mean, you know, the two most effective Democratic presidents of the 20th century, most people say, are FDR and LBJ. Now, there's a lot of critiques we can make of both of them. But, you know, FDR created Social Security. There was the Works Progress Administration. LBJ played a role in passing the Civil Rights Act, Medicare. I mean, things that have stayed with us for many times and are obviously things that have gone down in history as being great achievements for working class people, the Black community and others. Biden has done the exact opposite. And in fact, when we look at the very programs that we have talked about in the context of the New Deal and the Great Society, we have seen that Biden, and he's not alone in this, just like Obama and just like Clinton, and just like, of course, all the Republicans who have done this aggressively, he has continued to preside over the erosion of the social safety net that had been built up for working class people in response to their own demands, starting with the Great Depression. I mean, you look at the issue of Medicaid, for instance, I mean, under Biden, you have millions of people being kicked off of Medicaid because of the lapsing of certain COVID era protections. I mean, you have the issue of lead in the water, which is one of the biggest issues that the White House was championing uh, when they came in. We're going to address this issue. We're going to take this on. We're going to put money into the Inflation Reduction Act. They also put some money on this issue into some of the things they passed right after COVID. And it added up to about $90 billion. 
to be spent over, I think, roughly the next five to 10 years. Now, of course, that sounds great. I mean, if you and I just had $90 billion, we'd be like, that's a lot of money. But if you look at the American Society of Civil Engineers, when these bills were being passed, they said that the funding deficit was like something around $430 billion. So in fact, the Biden administration has done the opposite of addressing all of the lead issues as it concerns the people of the United States of America. They've just picked and choose a handful of people who will no longer have poison water while leaving the rest to fend for themselves. Or if, you know, best case scenario happens, have their state or locality make it up. So rather than actually solving the problems of working class people, he's just deepening them on front after front after front and sending billions of dollars overseas at the same time. I mean, right now, as many as 2 million people could be kicked off of, of WIC, which is aid for women and infants, which more or less just make sure that infants have the proper nutrition, infants coming from poor families who can't afford for them to have the proper nutrition, you know, to make sure that they get it. And there's a gap. Two million people will probably be kicked off if they don't close that gap. There's still time for the gap to be closed. But based on Biden's own proposal, the gap would not be closed. Two million people, infants, would lose access to the most basic nutritional needs that they have. Same thing is true with housing choice vouchers, where as many as 112,000 people could actually lose their homes because they're underfunding the program. Now, it's not a great program. It's actually a bad way to provision affordable housing. But nonetheless, this is the difference. So they're sending $17 billion. Uh, the House wants to to Israel. Biden wants to spend $14 billion, $60 billion to uh, Ukraine and some more to Taiwan, $95 billion all told. So they'll do a special budget, a supplemental budget, to give $95 billion to other countries to continue genocide in a failed war in Ukraine and a potential war with China. But they won't spend even a fraction of that money to make sure that all infants in America have the proper nutrition, to make sure that all people can drink water that is not poisoned with lead, to make sure that we have enough uh, electric vehicle chargers so that we can transition off of fossil fuels and keep the planet from melting down. I mean, these are all things that the White House touts over and over and over again, but none of them meet the scale of the problem. But then you have the AOCs, you have the Karine Jean-Pierre's, you have all these senators, you have these other people who are throwing dust in your eyes and saying, he's so effective. He's done so much. Here's a big dollar figure. Doesn't that sound great? But no one is saying, what is the scale of the problem? So unlike previous presidents who have been lauded by Democrats, he has in fact continued to preside and in fact collude in the decline in the social safety net for working class people that was built up during the depression, during the 50s, during the 60s, specifically because people said we had to move beyond this dog-eat-dog -dog reality in life where if you don't you know, get the right job at the right time, the right boss, that you could be out on the street hungry without a home and without opportunities for education. It's shameful. Right. And again, these are the issues that the Democrats, including the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, completely turn away from. They won't talk about it. Again, going back, even though it's not the biggest issue in the world, the classified documents that Biden took from the White House when he was leaving the vice presidency, he did that because he was writing another book with a ghostwriter, Mark Zwanzer, and he gave the classified documents, including documents about Afghanistan. This is in 2017, because he was writing another book. His first book was Promises to My Dad, and another one was about promises. There's always these sugary, for my dad, for promises, whatever kind of books. They're stealing or appear to be stealing classified documents. If you stole classified documents, or I did, you know, we would go to prison. 
I mean, Julian Assange is still in prison, and all he did was publish uh, secret documents. He didn't even steal them. He just published them. But he's facing life in prison. But when Trump does it, the Democrats say, oh, this is an assault on democracy. And when Biden does it, it's ignored as if no big deal. Anyway, a complete, complete hypocrisy and double standard. I mean, that's why when we look at this issue, the problem with Biden, we have to frame it in a critique of the capitalist system. And I think you put it so well, Eugene, that even if he is a president who is senile, even if he's a defective president, it's the system itself that he represents. And only a defective system would allow somebody like Biden to continue to be president. And also, I want to get to the parts where he was, from the beginning of his political career, not a liberal. I don't know why AOC and the liberals, Democratic Socialists, think he's so great and wonderful. From the beginning, when he entered the U.S. Senate, he was part of the racist wing of the U.S. Senate. His friends were the right-wing Dixiecrat segregationists. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But from the beginning also, Biden was a committed empire builder, a committed imperialist. I want to play another clip. It's about, it's back in 1986, I think, when Biden is in the U.S. Senate. He's talking about Israel and why the U.S. gives $3 billion, at that time, $3 billion a year to sustain the Zionist regime in Tel Aviv. And, you know, right now he might say, we care about Jews, we care about Jewish people, we want to fight anti-Semitism. Listen to how he talks about the real way the U.S. thinks and should think about Israel. This is a very revealing clip from 1986. If we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. Well, the funny part there, Eugene, is the U.S. actually did invent Israel. Yeah. Uh, we played clips here in the last couple of shows where Harry Truman talks about how the U.S. actually carried out the displacement of millions of Palestinian people because it was committed to going forward with a colonial project called the State of Israel. But that aside, you, you note the tone, the belligerence, the hubris, the arrogance. We don't apologize, meaning the Israeli government had just invaded Lebanon. They were bombing Beirut. Thousands of people were killed. Right before that, in, in the 1967 war, the Israeli government seized the West Bank. They seized Gaza. They seized the Golan Heights. They seized a big part of Egypt. Large numbers of Arab people were killed. Their lands were stolen. And Biden gets up, we don't have to apologize. Why? Nothing about anti-Semitism or fighting anti-Semitism. This is for us. This is for us, meaning for imperialism.
Anyway, go ahead. No, well, it's a great point. And I would also just say it's very similar to the rhetoric, right, that people are, including Biden, are using on Ukraine right now, right? Like the reason to keep doing this is is even if, you know, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are dying, it's because it's good for us, quote unquote. But, you know, who that us is is an important question. And I think an important one for Biden. But it really is an astonishing statement on multiple levels. And I'll also note he repeated that statement I believe it was last year, I not believe it was last year, when the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, came you know, to visit the White House and they were sitting there in their little Oval Office meeting. And he didn't repeat the whole thing, but said if there wasn't an Israel, we'd have to create an Israel. So he remembered that. He remembered that in order for the U.S. to have complete and total control over the crossroads of global commerce and one of the largest oil areas of the world, and I think it's oil and gas, not for America, but for Asia. And these are the countries that the U.S. is trying to control in the global economy. So critical area to control that you have to have Israel. And if he forgot many other things, he did not forget the importance of that to U.S. imperialism and the importance of what he's doing. And it's sort of, in a way, I think it makes an important moral connection between uh, his support for genocide now and what was happening then, because as you pointed out, they had just invaded Lebanon. And if it was in 1986, I would say then they had probably, the PLO had just probably recently evacuated from Lebanon and gone to Tunisia. But of course, the Sabra and Shatila massacre, you know, there was the terror bombings that were taking place of Beirut, the mobilizing of these death squads. I mean, it was, it was so bad that Ronald Reagan, who was a 100% supporter of Israel, like down with Israel, down the line, 100% was telling them, you got to stop these bombings. Like, this is too much. The PR, we can't withstand this. But I guess it, you know, Joe Biden felt we didn't need to apologize. But again, you can see the same level of callousness in the same way he can remember uh, the importance of Israel. He can certainly remember that that means that the victims of Israeli aggression and genocide are lesser human beings from the point of view of the U.S. administration, should be treated as such, and there should be no apology. And you'll note the officials of the White House in the State Department in the Pentagon, never apologize, never take responsibility for anything regarding their own facilitation of genocide. I mean, they asked John Kirby after the ICJ blows his statement that the South African case was meritless out of the water. I mean, what he said is just obviously false. And he refuses to walk it back because he's so committed to supporting the genocide. So I think when we look at it like this, you know, it's it's not only an important statement about the role of Israel to U.S. imperialism, but I think about the sort of the moral casualties of that role. Uh, And when we think, how are they doing this genocide? Well, they've been doing it for quite some time. And this is maybe different in a sense that the intensity, I think, is higher than some of these past incidents, but also most important, never before has something been, you know, live on tape. I think if we had the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in the 80s on tape on social media the way we do now, you know, people might not say, oh, this is so much worse. Not that we need to even compare, you know, two terrible massacres uh, and genocidal actions like that. But it just shows that the desensitization of the officials, the dehumanization of those who are victimized by the Israeli aggression is long running and baked in as it concerns Joe Biden and basically every single other person in the broader sort of U.S. national security state for, and Congress, of course, who support these policies. I mean, Chris Van Hollen, who, of course, is the senator from Maryland, big supporter of Joe Biden, he actually says Israel's committing war crimes and then goes on to vote to send them more money to buy more weapons to commit more war crimes. I mean, the level of hypocrisy of just disgusting, you know, uh, double-faced comments about these issues is really just, it's shocking sometimes. And maybe it shouldn't be shocking, but I do think we should continue to be outraged by it, even if we're not necessarily surprised by it, because it is, in fact, outrageous. Israel, as an occupier, does not have the right to, quote, defend itself if people resist their occupation. And the UN has 
said that Israel is an occupier. By international law, Israel is an occupier. It's not, it's not a point of dispute. That fact is not a disputed fact. Doesn't have the right to defend itself. But let's just assume for a moment that Israel was arguing with some plausibility that it was, quote, defending itself. It destroyed all the hospitals in northern Gaza. It drove all the people to the south. Now they're all taking refuge in Rafah. It's the last place there is. There's no place else to hide. 100,000 people have been killed or wounded. 80% of the homes have been destroyed or badly damaged. So more than a million people are now displaced. People are starving. They're starving, according to the United Nations. 12,000 of the dead are children, just kids. I mean, as you're pointing out, we're watching this. We can see it. If it's not on ABC, NBC, CBS, people have social media access, and we're watching this. The whole world is watching a genocide in real time. And as the Israelis moved south, from the north to the south, as they've gone, Eugene, they're blowing everything up. They're blowing up the universities. They're blowing up the schools. They're blowing up the apartment buildings. That's not self-defense. When you blow up the university, when you blow up the apartment buildings, after the people have left them, there were no people left. They were driven to the south, and then the demolition crews come in and blow the stuff up. So what they're doing is making it impossible for the Palestinians to continue to live. We're, we're out in the streets chanting, let Gaza live, because the point is that Israel, with the backing of Joe Biden and the Republicans, but Joe Biden is the head of state, they are going along with the devastation and destruction of all of Gaza so there is no place to hide and there is no place to come back to. This is what we're actually, this is the reality. And the Israeli supporters, and that's most of Congress, almost all of them, they, and, and even the critics may criticize or whine about this or that, but nobody's actually saying what I just said, that the Israelis are deliberately destroying Gaza to make it uninhabitable, and that's not self-defense in any way. It's genocide. Anyway, I, I really, um, I think we have to just keep framing this for people and, and also, we'll remember in November as the chant at all the demonstrations, well, voting for Trump isn't going to help the Palestinian people one bit. Because let's just talk about what Trump did when he was president. His policy towards Israel was more extreme, more for the right wing, more for the fascists. Anyway, go ahead. No, I think it's a good point. I mean, you know, the very issue of normalization and the so-called Abraham Accords, I mean, that came from Trump. And, you know, I have felt, you know, pretty much from the beginning, and, and it seems pretty obvious maybe to many at this point, that, you know, it's, the U.S. wants this to happen. It's not as if, like, the Israelis are doing something they don't want them to do, and they're just throwing up their hands, we can't stop them, even though that's what they constantly are leaking to the media. But the reality is this, it's very clear, and it started with Trump. You know, for the U.S. to be able to pivot to Asia, quote-unquote, which started with Obama, so, you know, here we can go Obama through Trump, through Biden, see the same policy. For the U.S. to be able to, quote-unquote, pivot to Asia, which is to move the majority of its military 
military force to try to contain China and kneecap China, uh, its rise and its growth. It has to be able to pivot out of the previous area of their main focus, and that was uh, the Middle East, North Africa, West Asia region. But in order to do that, they have to have some sort of stable security alliance that will continue to push forward the U.S. goals and agenda and what will remain a geostrategically critical region of the world. And so, of course, Israel is already there doing that job. So the whole idea of normalization is to create a reactionary Arab-Israeli bloc that will keep the same sort of Western-friendly policies going in the region and act as a check on the countries that they feel that they cannot control, which are centered on Iran and the other broader groups, the axis of resistance or whatever. So from my point of view, I think this is exactly what Biden and these others want. They've been pushing since before October 7th, as soon as they came into office, saying we want to continue the Trump policy of normalization with the countries in the region. We want to continue to push forward the, you know, the foundation that they've been building on this issue. And I think they feel that the more Palestinians that die, the better it is for them, because then they have the ability to use that as leverage over the Israelis and say, we're the only thing that's protecting you from the wrath and the anger of almost the entire world, which means you need to shape things a little bit more uh, the way we would like to see them shaped. And also it does something critical for them, or they hope it does. It's failed to do so. And I think it will continue to fail to do so, which is to crush the spirit of the Palestinian people, which is the biggest obstacle to normalization. The Palestinians have said, you're not going to resolve our issue over our heads or without our input. And if you try to, we will stand up and we will defend our rights to our land and our right to return for our refugees and the freedom of our political prisoners. And they have done so, and they are preventing them from doing this. So I think the Americans are hoping that they can do two things. They can destroy the spirit of the Palestinian resistance and crush it so that they can impose, you know, a quizzling uh, you know, neo-colonial Palestinian leadership on the Palestinian people. And they're hoping that they can use the extreme violence and genocide of the Israelis as leverage against them to force them to accept some sort of U.S. you know, backed situation here. So I think that we can see that whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, they're both continuing the exact same policy towards the Palestine, towards the broader West Asian region. And that is to try to do whatever they can, no matter how violent, no matter how genocidal, to make sure that as they're on their way out, they establish their own gendarme and you know watchtower in the region to make sure that the, the aspirations of the masses of people in that region cannot be reached. And I would say subsidiarily, this is partially why we see what's happening in Sudan happening right now, what's happening in Yemen happening right now. All of this is all the maximum pressure on Iran, the continued occupation of Syria and the continued sanctions on them. All of this is all designed in order to make sure that what people actually want in West Asia can never happen and that they can facilitate these deeply unpopular regimes and the Israeli apartheid government having control over the entire region and keeping the U.S. rig going. Very good. I, I agree with you 100 percent on those points. Let's pivot Let's have our own pivot to, uh, to Ukraine. Now, we've watched, as we've been talking, Eugene, we've been watching a genocide in real time. And during the last four months, our eyes have turned away from Ukraine. The media doesn't cover Ukraine. But Ukraine is a killing field. It's not the devastating destruction of civilians. I mean, if, if Russia, which has thousands of nuclear weapons and huge a huge conventional military wanted to, it could level huge parts of Ukraine. That's not its strategy. It's quite clear at this point that whatever the initial strategy was, that Putin has decided that the Russian-speaking parts of eastern and southern Ukraine, from Crimea up through the Donbass, 
that those are going to be under Russian control or part of Russia going forward, and nothing's going to change that. The military offensive by the Ukrainians was a big flop. So many young Ukrainians died in that offensive because they were walking through minefields. And then you saw U.S. politicians and U.S. military figures saying they have a worry about the Ukraine, and the, wor the worry is that Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse. There's all this forced conscription to get more bodies into the Ukrainian armed forces. The fighting age of Ukrainian soldiers is going up and up and up. It's no longer just young, mainly men. It's, they're running out of men because they're dying. Maybe a half a million have either been killed or, or badly wounded in this war. We don't know the actual numbers, but it's high. It's been a real killing field. And all of this, too, Eugene, was completely avoidable. As you and I talked about, you know, in February uh, 2022, uh, we were talking in the weeks before the Russian invasion and then after the invasion. Sullivan, Blinken, Biden made this conflict inevitable. I don't know if you saw the or some or all of the interview between Putin and Tucker Carlson. But it's quite clear from Putin's many, many statements, and I'm not saying anything about Putin's historical version and view of Russia. That's not my point. But he's making it quite clear that the limits of Russia's military goals are quite also observable. They are going to keep control of the Donbass and Crimea. Everybody can see that the Ukrainians don't have the ability to dislodge them. America tells the Ukrainians, keep fighting. Biden tells them, keep fighting. But we won't send U.S. troops. Your struggle is so important, but we're not going to send any U.S. troops because then American public opinion will explode against Biden. So they're not going to send U.S. troops, but they want the Ukrainians to keep fighting. I mean, these people are pathetic imperialists. They don't want to really take the political cost of waging war. They want to do, have proxies do it. They don't mind the death and destruction in record numbers, hundreds of thousands in the case of the Ukraine war, or growing tens of thousands or more than 100,000 dead and wounded in, in Gaza. They don't care about that. All of it is about projection of American power and these callous, you know, I don't even, I, I'm trying to find the correct adjectives to describe them as people. I kind of feel like they're people in the zoological sense of the word, but not from a human point of view. Because if you were actually human and had human qualities, how could you do this? But this is the policy of Biden. And then you have the liberals like AOC say, oh, he's, he's the best president we've ever had. He got to finish the job. Well, let's just talk a little bit as we as we go on here to Ukraine. And then I want to come back briefly, at least, to talk about Biden's domestic record. Yeah. No, I think it's an important question. Another one, right, where the difference between Trump and Biden is not that much. Biden sort of building on what Trump did, sending the first lethal weapons that even Obama wouldn't send to the Ukrainians to wage the war. But that's sort of a separate show for a separate time. I mean, you know, Lindsey Graham is the one who comes to mind the most, but we've heard it from many U.S officials and elected officials. We've heard it from Polish officials and others. I mean, this fighting until the last Ukrainian, like for the first year they were depending, they were, you know, kind of trying to act like it was all 
you know, freedom, love, peace, democracy. But then as that obviously is not true, I mean, that hasn't been true. I mean, let's remember here, one of the precipitating factors to tensions rising between Russia and Ukraine that led to the war was in fact Zelensky banning all the opposition uh, television networks. And of course, now we know he's banned all television networks that are not controlled by him and just made one channel. All opposition politics have been totally banned from the country and many of them have been jailed. And in addition, both then and now, he's been selling the country for parts. I mean, he went to the New York Stock Exchange and said, we have $400 billion of public property that we will just give away to American corporations. And this is after prior to the war, he had already opened up the land so that you have all these speculators buying the land. I mean, I read the most unbelievable article in Reuters, I think it was last year, uh, might have been the, to the latter end of 2022 about what was going to happen with the harvest. And they were quoting a farmer who was, who was talking about his harvest in Ukraine. And the guy was from the Netherlands because, of course, agribusiness and rich people from all around have been allowed to come in. And now they're destroying the agriculture in the rest of Europe by dumping their grain. So this is obviously not some, you know, justice truth and freedom crusade, not to mention they have all these Nazis in the government. So now that that's gone, they've really been fully masked off. And they're saying, yes, listen, the whole reason why this is good is that we can send Ukrainians to die uh, in order to, quote unquote, weaken Russia. And I want to note that 500,000 killed and wounded number that you quoted earlier, that actually comes from a Ukrainian politician. So this is not some Putin propaganda. This comes from a high ranking Ukrainian politician who said that there is that he thinks at least 500,000 killed and wounded and 30,000 being killed and wounded every single month. So this is, again, not Putin propaganda. This is the Ukrainian government itself, people who are high up in it saying that this is the toll that they're facing. So it's completely callous. And when you really take one step back and think like, because, you know, some of these terms are never really fully fleshed out and you just get Putin's a dictator. There's this, there's that. So there's this, this vague sense that it's good to weaken Russia. But this is an old, old policy that actually goes back to the latter final days of the, the Soviet Union. And we've talked about it before here on the show, so I won't go deeply into it. And there's a, a, a article I wrote called Should We Really Blame NATO or Is NATO to Blame for Ukraine that you can find at liberationnews.org where I go all over this. But at the first Bush administration, their aides were saying, how do we find a way to get in between Germany and Russia? And they started the policy then of moving NATO further eastward. And what were they concerned about? Well, they weren't concerned that there wasn't going to be democracy or that freedom was going to die. They were afraid that if the Western European powers, especially Germany, made the obvious natural alliance with Russia economically, that they would come together as sort of a joint Eurasian pole that would be able to challenge American dominance of the world and question American decisions about how they were going Going to move forward in a post-Soviet world, and they did not want any single person to question the views that were coming out of the U.S. ruling class and establishment about how the world should work. They said they wanted Russia to be functionally demilitarized and to play no significant role in global affairs. Now, you might want that, but that's obviously completely ridiculous for the leadership of the United States of America to just say, any country who we think can maybe, or a coalition of countries, challenge us. And by challenge us, it means just challenge. And this is what people have to think. They say us. But what the people in Congress who have a low approval rating, who most people hate, the people in the White House who have a low approval rating, who most people hate, billionaires who everyone hates, who everyone knows controls politics. So if those people can't get what they want out of Europe or anywhere where a sort of Europe-Russia alliance could have influence, 
that they would have to blow up the possibility of that alliance. So how do we get in between Germany and Russia? And since then, they played this entire policy out in order to get closer and closer to the Russian borders, knowing the whole time, being warned from the very beginning that this could potentially cause a war, having the Russians tell them over and over again, having their own experts telling them over and over again. There's even a point where Bill Clinton asked one of his aides, should we stop lying to the Russians about what we're really doing here in NATO? Because he was feeling a little bad. They said, no, no, no. We have to keep lying, Mr. President, because this is absolutely critical. So the whole reason we are in this conflict, it's not peace, it's not freedom, it's not justice, it's not Putin is an anti-democratic this, that, and the third, which the Americans could care less about. Uh, look at who their friends are, quite frankly, including these genocidaires sitting in Tel Aviv. It's about the U.S. fearing that if Russia is allowed to have economic relations with countries in Central and Western Europe who would like to have economic relations, that it will create a key geopolitical challenger to the United States, which means they will not be able to push their billionaire-backed political agenda anywhere they want, whenever they want, no matter what the consequences. So it's all about this global policeman, imperial control of every aspect of the world that American people are sick and tired of. And that's why they have to, if they are sick and tired of it, stand up against this onslaught to support Zelensky, who's a corrupt, neoliberal, Nazi-adjacent you know, pseudo-dictator, uh, semi-dictator. He's a real one in a way, if you look at it. Um, he canceled the elections, by the way, just so you know, so that he could stay in power. They have to stop supporting him because it's not for anything good. It's purely to keep the war machine going, which is the final piece I'll say about that. That was the other fear at the end of the Soviet Union about peace breaking out in Europe was that the American people would say, well, let's stop spending so much money on this outlandish war machine and let's spend it on our own people. They don't want to help people here in the United States. They don't want to help anyone in Ukraine. They don't want to help anyone anywhere else. They just want to maintain their own power, no matter what it costs, people here or people. I'm glad you framed it on a class basis. You know, when when we talk about us or them, you know, if you look at a country and 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 say Ukraine without noticing that there's a Ukrainian capitalist class, there's a Ukrainian ruling class, and then there's the working class and the, and the farmers, and the same in the United States. Like, if we just treat these entities as sort of one class or single class or one nation with justice for all in the case of the United States, you don't really understand the politics, that class politics or class interests are driving these policies. What are the class interests of the capitalists in the United States? To make lots of money, to dominate the rest of the world, to sort of weaken its potential competitors so that they can continue to make more money around the world. I mean, that's their plan. And, and that's what's driving all of this. And I just want to finish on Ukraine. I think you put it so well. And for our audience that maybe didn't see our earlier shows two years ago or a year and a half ago, Putin and Russia was saying then, and they are saying now, that if the United States had agreed that Ukraine would be neutral, that it would not come into NATO, that Ukraine, which is, shares this huge border with Russia and was historically part of or with Russia, at least for all intents and purposes for many centuries, that as long as the U.S. had guaranteed the Russians that this security demand that they had would be met, there would be no war. And Blinken and Biden and Jake Sullivan and that whole team, they knew that if they didn't give Russia some guarantee for its own security, that Russia having amassed large numbers of troops would take the troops into Ukraine. Russia did that, and Biden and Blinken and Sullivan got what they wanted. 
So if we talk about Ukraine and its fight for freedom and don't talk about the class interests that are driving these policies, we don't understand it. Anyway, as we move really close now to the finish, Eugene, talking about class interests, it's easier for people in the United States to perceive class interests at home because it's not far away. And, you know, we don't talk about the nation. We talk about things as they are in, in ways that we can observe. Joe Biden came into the U.S. Senate not as a liberal. Sorry, AOC. Sorry, liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Joe Biden came in in a deep, profound alliance at the moment that the black freedom struggle, the black movement for equality, the civil rights movement was still riding high. Joe Biden came into the U.S. Senate and aligned himself with the Dixiecrats, with Eastland, with Strom Thurmond, with Jesse Helms. He came in to smash the integration movement that was being ordered by, uh, by federal district courts for busing so that school integration would, would happen. But that's who Biden is. I mean, you, you shared with me and some other friends recently a letter that Biden sent, a fawning letter to Eastland. I, I think we have an image of Eastland for people who might not know him. Eastland is on the record as a U.S. senator saying, black people constitute an inferior race. That's the U.S. Senator Eastland, who is Joe Biden's friend. Anyway, let's talk about, there's Eastland now, but it's Strom Thurmond too, the Dixiecrats. They left the Democratic Party when Truman desegregated the U.S. Armed Forces after, you know, in 1948 and ran their own presidential ticket. But these are Klansmen in suits and ties. They're not wearing their hood at the moment, but it doesn't matter. That's who they are. And that's who Biden's friends were. No, it, it's a very good point because, you know, one of the issues in blocking the busing, you know, was the, as you will remember, Brian, the so-called Byrd Amendment, uh, which was put forward by Senator Byrd from West Virginia to prevent federal money from being used in busing. But the point being, Senator Byrd was admittedly a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, of course, he then later came out and said, oh, I was wrong for doing it. But like, we're not talking metaphorical Klansmen. We're talking actual, like, real Klansmen. But, you know, Eastland, uh, you know, really, other than maybe Theodore Bilbo, the worst of the worst in the 20th century in terms of racism. I mean, this is a guy who said that, you know, outright that he believed that black people were inferior to white people. He was told President Johnson over the phone about the uh, murder of Goodman, Cheney and Schwerner, the civil rights workers there in um, the South in 1964. He said it was a hoax. Uh, now, this was, of course, what they were all saying, the segregationists, but he said, oh, it's a hoax. It's not actually real. So, I mean, this is the level of racism. I mean, if people can remember, uh, if they are movie buffs here, uh, the great In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier, when he goes out to that big plantation to visit that racist white politician who's kind of running the county, that guy is actually based on Eastland, right? So this guy is actually literally the caricature of the segregationist, super racist politician. And he was, of course, a key ally of Biden in this period, 1971 to 1976, Biden comes in in 73, where there is this huge push against busing. And I'm glad you sort of opened this by, you know, relating the issue of class, because it really is an important issue to talk about, you know, the impact of class on race, both historically and certainly, you know, you can carry this forward contemporarily. But you know, the context of this, which Biden, of course, himself distorted in the 2020 primary when he got caught on this, is, you know, what was happening in Wilmington, Delaware, which is very similar to what was happening in Louisville at the time, but really was majorly most... Uh, uh, 
you know, big in Detroit in the, the Michigan area. And it led to George Wallace winning the primary of the Democrats in 72 because of it. And that was the issue of integrating the suburbs and the inner cities as it concerned the issue of desegregation. Because what had happened in the context of white flight uh, was I've been going on for many years, which is for people who don't know, white people leaving the inner cities, the urban areas to go to the suburbs because they didn't want to live near black people. And of course, black people, no matter how much money they had, could rarely move to these same places because of the intense redlining and racism that wasn't like written down like Jim Crow in the South, but was the sort of de facto racism of the insurance industry, the real estate agents and others. And then you build into that things like opt out policies where people could opt out of schools that were mainly black to go to places that were mainly white. And so what had taken place uh, is that you had created urban inner city schools that were all black and suburban schools that were all white. But it was even more than that, because schools in the United States are funded by property taxes. So when people who have all the money in their houses now don't live in the cities, but live in the suburbs, the cities, in addition to whatever other problems they have in the, the, uh, the issues of segregation and schooling and so on and so forth, don't actually have the resources to make the schools quality schools. Now, this issue had come up at the end of the 60s, famous Supreme Court case. And I'll come back around to Biden here in a second, but it's important, I think, for people to have the context. The San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, which was a case where the plaintiffs were saying that the government, that basically you had a constitutional right to a quality school. And if you didn't have enough money, the government had to make the money available to the jurisdiction um, to, to make the school better. The Supreme Court rules against them. So it's ruled that there's no right basically to a quality education and there's no right to an equalization of money. So it comes to a head in Detroit and many of these other cities, Louisville was one, Wilmington was one, but Detroit was the big one because there was a Supreme Court case about it called Milliken v. Bradley, where the judge in that case said, well, and to really resolve this question, we can't just focus on whether or not it was intentionally created to have this level of segregation. We have to recognize that it exists. And all these little small choices, the redlining, all these other things made it exist. So it is, you know, just like Jim Crow, discrimination really based on statute law and custom. And on top of that, that integration doesn't really have any meaning unless it has economic content. So having integrated schools that are poor and falling down doesn't make any sense. And the only way to really resolve this is to unify the suburbs and the inner cities as it concerns uh, the issue of education so that you have a strong tax base to make all of the schools great and that you can then integrate the schools racially to get the benefits from you know, having a diverse environment around you of which there are benefits. Now, all that being said, this in Detroit was aggressively attacked as mixing classes not just races, because it was attacking the class privilege of segregation in America. That if you are white, you have the right to live in a suburb, in a nice house with a good job. And if you're black, you do not. And this is what they were using to bind so many working class white people to the system. So to attack this would be to attack the pillar of the capitalist racism in America and its divide and conquer realities. So of course, there's a big uproar, you know, from the racists themselves living in the suburbs who left the city because they did not like black people and didn't want to live there. But also, you know, from the high circles of U.S. politics, which until then, from 54 to then, had been supporting at least nominally the idea of civil rights. So one of the famous historians of this period said that 1971 to 1976 in Congress reminded them the most of the Southern legislatures in the years immediately after the Brown versus the Board of Education experience. And that was what Biden was a part of. And I say that because Biden has come back and tried to say, well, you know, 
a lot of black people didn't want busing. Now, in Wilmington, where he was doing this, that was actually not true. But it is true that there were critiques from the black community of how busing was being carried out. But that was not, not what Biden was representing. People in his state did not want there to be a unified school district between Wilmington and the areas surrounding it. He went to community meetings. They criticized him, uh, or not criticized him, but implored him to take to the floor and take up this issue. And then as soon as he got there in 1973, he joined with the most racist individuals from, from Byrd to Strom Thurmond to Jesse Holmes to James O. Eastland to back these bills that came up Oh, I mean, they were silly in some cases, like banning the use of federal funds to buy gasoline for school buses if they were potentially going to be used. These kind of bills were the things that they were pushing and they were promoting. And as Biden himself said, they were critical policies. And he could understand as a father because he wouldn't want his sons to have to grow up in a racial jungle. So ultimately, despite the fact that he tried to walk it back in 2020, Kamala Harris, who had the great line against him, of course, didn't press the issue. Cory Booker tried to press the issue, but, you know, it never broke through because the media uh, refused to really report it in a correct way. And Biden has tried to act like he was for integrated schools or something like that. Uh, I think he said in 2020, I said we should do it through affordable housing, not through busing. No. Completely false. Biden was one of the number one leaders of the racist counter-revolution to the, ex the extension of the logic of the civil rights movement to recognize that civil rights could mean nothing without economic rights. And while it was easy to challenge the de jure legal racism in the South, it would be a lot harder to challenge the de facto racism in the North and West. And it would require economic concessions by the capitalist, of course, but also by many white people who had been given some of these privileges uh, by exclusion of blacks to accept that we could all have prosperity but it would have to be in a very different way. And this backlash to that kind of thought process, that Black people should be able to have equality, even if it meant having to address some of the class inequalities that exist in our country. That's what Biden was standing up against when he stood up against busing, when he sent a fawning letter to James Eastland. Thank you so much for supporting me in the context of all of this. But it really is a disgusting, disgusting moment in the history of this country. It's a very important one, I think, for people to understand about why it was the civil rights movement started to lose steam legally in the late 60s and the early 70s. And, and, and the real reason is because the issue of civil rights started to encompass economic rights in a very real way. And that started to challenge very real interest. And the Supreme Court, the Nixon administration and others facilitated those interests in pushing back against the demands that had emerged from the civil rights era. And Biden was right there with them. And Eastland's family, his dad was a cotton plantation owner. So was Eastland, by the way, uh, James yeah. East, James in Eastland. County. So this is the old South, the racist, you know, fascistic police state South that Biden, when he comes into, Senate, into the Senate, he immediately pals around with them. Again, this is 1973. He, entered, he wins in 72 in Delaware for the Senate race. Well, you know, one thing I want to also note about that is that Biden lost that fight. In 1978, they did uh, integrate the schools in Wilmington. It's considered a great civil rights victory there by the black community. But now the thing is totally reversed because of so-called school choice, because they've created this whole charter school phenomenon there in Delaware that has been able to erode the gains of the civil rights movement. So as much as this is in the past, it's actually really still with us right now. And I think it's important to note, you know, that piece as well, that a lot of people in this area are, are lamenting the loss of these civil rights gains that Biden himself stood up against and that he has done nothing really to fight back against the erosion of in that time. As we move towards the finish, Eugene, I just also for the audience that may be sort of paying more attention now, maybe they were 
too young in 2016 or 2012 or 2008. But, you know, Biden was not a popular person uh, at all, and certainly not among progressives because of what you're describing in the 1970s. Then he was an arch supporter of George W. Bush uh, in the Iraq invasion, 100% for it. In the 1990s, he said his proudest achievement was the criminal justice reform bill, which in, in essence, Eugene, uh, doubled the prison population in the United States, or almost doubled it. It took the United States about 200 years to reach the 1 million mark of the number of people it incarcerated. And then, like in the next 20 years, that 1 million jumped to 2 million. So now it's like 2.3 million. One out of every four prisoners in the world, or maybe one out of every five. But like those numbers are prisoners in the United States prisons. Joe Biden said his proudest achievement in the Senate was the passage of those repressive laws. And, and it was all motivated by racism. I have a, we showed a, a, a clip here of, of Biden speaking in the U.S. Senate. I think we actually have the audio that goes with it. If we do, I want to play it for you. Uh, and again, it's, it shows that Biden is not just like sort of there. He's a, he's a right-wing force in the Senate. When Obama becomes nominated, uh, he picked for the presidency the first black man running on a major party ticket in, in 2008. He picked Joe Biden because he figured this was a way to reach backward, reactionary, racist white people to have somebody like Joe Biden as his vice president. That's the only reason Biden got on the ticket. There was no other reason. The guy can't even, couldn't even talk much then. And then, of course, Obama helped rescue Biden because they thought Bernie Sanders was going to take the nomination in 2020. So Obama plucked Biden out of the field. He was about ninth at that time in the Democratic primary and made the other candidates or con convinced the other candidates to unite around Biden so that Bernie Sanders wouldn't become the candidate of the Democratic Party. Anyway, let's play this clip and I'm, then I'm going to go to you and I'm going to give you the last word. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized. Eugene, I love hearing this racist talk about people's conscience especially as we play it now in the middle of a genocide that he's that he's 100% responsible for. Anyway, I'm going to give you the last word about Joe Biden, Trump, class, politics, imperialism. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I hear you. I mean, it really is amazing for him to be talking about morality. And it's an amazing statement, really, when you think about it. I mean, you know, he's building in, of course, to this super predator rhetoric, which is completely fake. I would encourage everyone to read uh, the great book, the Way We Never Were by Stephanie Kuntz. Uh, great debunking of a lot of that, that rhetoric, but it's all nonsense. That's the bottom line there. But, you know, also, when you look at what was in the crime bill, I mean, one of the number one things that is known in terms of, you know, quote unquote, recidivism rates is if you're able to pursue education, especially higher education in prison, the chances of you recidivating when you get out are very low, 
basically zero. Because of course, if you get out with more skills than you had when you come in, you have more of an opportunity to make a life for yourself. And if you have a sort of, you know, higher education type skills, it's actually easier to find employment where people are going to be less skeptical of you as a formerly incarcerated person. But the crime bill made it illegal to give Pell Grants to prisoners to pursue higher education. So it's allegedly designed to address quote-unquote crime, and it actually eliminates one of the number one issues that would, you know, not that prison is good anyway, but that has a positive impact on changing people's lives and makes it possible for them to move on with their life when they leave prison. Because if not, they end up reoffending oftentimes, ending up back in prison. The so-called cycle that people get in, it's a key way to sort of break that cycle, but they eliminate it in that context. Now, there are many other negative things, but the most important thing that is, is noted here is criminologists disagree on most things, but the one thing they agree on is that the policies of the crime bill did nothing to facilitate the decline in crime that we started to see towards the end of the 1990s and into the 2000s. So no matter what they thought they were doing, uh, it wasn't going to work. But quite frankly, people were telling them it wasn't going to work at the time. And they did it anyway because they were caught up in a major racist hysteria that was designed to crack down on Black communities as a, a you know stand-in response for the social fallout that these same politicians had created for themselves when they decided to hollow out the inner cities of America by destroying the manufacturing industries, by gutting the social safety net. They knew that this would create tremendous collateral damage. They knew where it would create the collateral damage, but they weren't going to reverse those policies because they sent the jobs somewhere else for a lot of money, to make a lot of money and a lot of profits. They gutted the social safety net so that they could have more of those profits to spend on yachts and mansions and not as much on taxes. So they did it on purpose. So the only other solution they had was to try to hold a lid on a boiling pot of contradiction they created, and they created the system of mass incarceration to do that. But of course, you know, most people, it's hard to convince them. You know, in the mid-1960s, you had 100,000 people in prison. You're now saying you want to put millions of people in prison for decades, and it's not 100% clear if it's going to have any impact at all? Well, the only way you're going to do that, same way you wage a war abroad, you have to demonize the enemy. And there is an entire attempt starting really during the Reagan administration in a big way, where, by the way, 1984, Joe Biden was the uh, one of the lead sponsors, along with Ted Kennedy, of the Sentencing Reform Act, which was the law that passed that established mandatory minimums, one of the most brutal and most failed policies of mass incarceration. And starting then, to back up these brutal policies, they put forward an extremely brutal counterinsurgency propaganda campaign primarily centered on young Black males and on single Black women with children. And they used that demonization in order to create these terrible policies. And Biden himself has recognized this because he himself said in 2020, it was the biggest mistake he ever made. So it's like, even he recognizes that it was, you know, completely and totally ineffective and completely and totally cruel. But the problem is, is that there were no consequences. And that at the end of the day, he could just say, well, you know, I was misunderstood about busing. Oh, you know, it was a big mistake what happened in 1994. Well, when your whole record shows that you're constantly doing racist stuff, is it really a mistake? And at what point does that become disqualifying for you? But to go to your point about Bernie Sanders, and I'll close on this, this is what I think we really have to understand about what's happening with Biden today. You know, for the Republicans, which is the, the arch capitalist party, you can always move further to the right. Because you're moving further to the right, it could be problematic for the capitalists, but you're moving in a pro-capitalist direction. You're giving them more money. You're giving them less regulations. You're making their life easier, even if they maybe don't like the chaos of a Trump. But on the Democratic side, which claims to be pro-people, 
claims to be for the working class, claims to be for the civil rights movement, claims to be for immigrants. The more you move in the direction, some would say to the left, I would say the direction of just justice, equality, and, and you know things that obviously make sense if you care about the working class in this country, the more you are infringing on the rights of capital. The more you're saying no one in this country should go hungry or be without a roof over their head or an education or access to information with the internet when we have this much wealth. So y'all got to pay because we created the wealth. So we're taking some of it back to increase the social wage. You know, the more you move in this direction, the more you say we're going to eliminate wage theft, which by the way, there's more wage theft than any other form, every other form of theft in America combined. And of course they don't like that because they're stealing the money. The more you move in this direction, you're starting to say, well, maybe capitalists shouldn't actually control all elements of how capital is allocated. Maybe we should nationalize some of these companies and just do the right thing when we have the resources to do the right thing and not have to pander to some rich billionaire Elon Musk type of person. So all those things sound good. They all make sense, but they all mean that the big money donors who back these campaigns that the vendors who make millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, doing the various things from ballot access to, to, to buying the ads, to making the ads, to all these different things, it means that they lose their money. It means that the revolving door that allows you to take classified documents so you can write a book and get a $3 million advance so that you can go and get your own, you know, lobbying position and make millions of dollars a year. Well, that starts to, you know, drift away. The profiteering of big pharma, that's going to disappear. Here. The surprise medical bills that are destroying people everywhere and the medical debt and the educational debt, that's going to disappear. So the further you move in that direction, it's more logical. It's very popular. It's definitely the right thing, both morally and to solve the problems that we have. But the people with the money are in trouble. But the reality is, is, uh, you know, whatever we say about the Democratic Party leadership, the vast majority of people who consider themselves Democrats want to move in this direction. They do think that billionaires and millionaires should pay more to improve the quality of life in our society for all people. They are voting and supporting for candidates in greater numbers who want to move in this direction. Young people launched an insurgency in 2016 in the primary, doing what they thought they were supposed to do, working within the system to promote a candidate who, who had values that they wanted to see put in place and they had to sabotage him. But the reality is, is when you have that situation, they're scrambling because they can't find anyone who's genuinely popular on the Democratic side, because even if they are, are pandering, they're going to pander in that direction towards the left, towards those who are starting to think about socialism, towards those who want to see the rich pay more to make sure that no one is living on the street. So they have to just do whatever they possibly can to prevent that. And they found Biden like an emergency break kind of candidate. They were able to exploit the, the Trumpism, but they can't get rid of him. Because to get rid of them is to open Pandora's box. And a popular Democrat who would actually take on the capitalist class, even in a small way, would, more would be more likely than not to win the Democratic primary. So they'd rather have a potentially demented, senile, moderate, formerly, you know, ensconced with segregationist, racist person, pro-war individual who is extremely unpopular even amongst Democrats. They'd rather have him because they're afraid if they remove him that the gravy train might stop. So it really is an example of the decay of U.S. empire, that it won't even let the smallest change. It won't even let you negotiate Medicare, negotiate for pharmaceutical drugs. They won't even allow the smallest changes in this country 
to preserve the privileges of the ultra rich, no matter who it costs. And that's why Biden is there. That's why Trump's there too. And that's why if people really want to look at how we change this country, you're going to have to look at how you change the two parties because there's no other way with this system that can be that we can move forward. Thank you, Eugene. I think you solved the riddle. How could a Democratic Party stay with somebody like Joe Biden? But I think your explanation is so correct. Eugene is also the author of Shackled and Chained. Uh, you can get that book from liberationnews.org. There's a store there that sells books. It's also on Amazon. Go to liberationnews.org first, not Amazon, to buy the book. But it's called Shackled and Chained, uh, an expose of the U.S. criminal justice and prison system. Eugene is also uh, a political organizer. He's the co-host of the Freedom Side Live, the live video show, every Thursday from 3 to 5 p.m. with Rania Kalik on Breakthrough News. That's 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Eugene Perrier, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 